This is Politics Media 101. Eric Erickson is a conservative radio host and blogger who grew up abroad, now lives in Georgia, and has some very interesting thoughts and observations on the relationship between evangelical voters, Trump, QAnon, the values that intertwine these communities, how all of that overlaps with the GOP, and what it means for elections. We got into all of this with him and what it means for the country's future. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with a few thousand people listening. If you want to join us live or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Also, please take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our episode this Friday featuring S.V. Date of the Huffington Post on whether there is bias in political media coverage, including for or against President Biden or President Trump. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Until we were getting ready for this discussion, I did not know that you, like me, had also grown up in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates, and we have something in common that I didn't realize until today. So you were living there in a different time than I was, but I'm interested to hear how maybe that experience might have shaped your perspective on the world. It did. So I moved to Dubai when I was five. <laughs> my, my dad actually was, he worked for Conical Oil. And when I was five years old, he was working in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, he had gotten a promotion to production foreman, which means he was in charge of a platform. And they said, okay, you've got to move now. Pick uh, Dubai, uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, or the Canary Islands. Well, okay, let's let's go to the Canary Islands. And they said, perfect, pick Dubai or Jakarta. So he said, well, let's let's go to Jakarta. Okay, pick Dubai or lose your job. So we wound up in Dubai. It was it was fantastic. Uh, I was there for ten years. We left in the run up to the Gulf War. All the American families were evacuated. But at the time, every three months, you had to leave the country for a week to get your visa renewed if you were uh, an expat. And my dad's company every three months would say, pick a country, go for a week. That is fantastic. I'm glad that you and John have that common thread. And thank you for kind of walking us through it. I wanted to switch back to American politics, Eric. Abortion rights is massive in evangelical or strong Christian conservative movements along with religious freedom. But I was wondering if we can put those two issues aside, could you kind of walk us through what are the other staples of policies or principles that really energize this voting block and turn them out? Pro-lifers are far more diverse, I think, than people think. It's not just the life issue. There's a larger issue for evangelicals in America uh, that is premised more on small government conservatism in a way, in large part because, like I explain to people in my conservatism, that if we're all sinners, I want as few in charge of me as possible. Now, the problem is how this has shifted over the last four years, because the answer I would give you in 2015 really is somewhat different from the answer now when it comes to, I guess, the, the, the splitting of the pro-life movement. Yeah, I would like to get into that and the role that maybe President Trump has played in this. Could you get into the splitting of the pro-life movement for us? It has a lot to do with the splitting of, of conservatives in general. Let's say Dobbs goes away. 
There will be the uh, pro-lifers who will feel like they've won the argument. There will be the pro-lifers where I am, very Christian-oriented evangelicals who think, okay, now the real work begins because now we're going to have all of these kids who we otherwise would not have. Uh, how do we alter the social safety net to accommodate their existence? How do we help their mothers? How do we help their fathers? How do we help their families? Now that you have this split within a conservative movement where you have a, a swing towards, for lack of a better term, national populism, I think, on some sides, you have a, a certain segment of the pro-life movement that has moved with this to let's impose our values on everyone else, as opposed to give us a safe harbor, leave us alone, uh, let us practice our faith and, and don't push your secularism on us. It'll be we're going to create a, essentially a new American order that kind of does impose a, a, a Christian worldview on the country. Now, that's alluring, I think, to anyone who's a, a Christian evangelical, but the reality is there are more people who disagree with that than agree with it, and all conservatives would be doing is setting up the power structures to ultimately come after them later. I, I think it would be foolhardy. That's the big divide within evangelicals now as to their motivating factors to get out and vote. Do they do they want to have a, a, a niche where they're welcome in the public square, or do they want to control the public square? Well, you just hit on the the strand of populism running through the evangelical movement with people that want to use the government as a blunt tool to impose their type of life on everybody else or, more sinisterly, make their opponents hurt. Is this type of view of government really compatible with the principles that our country was founded on and the spirit of the laws of the Constitution? Oh, it's absolutely not compatible, but a lot of them don't care, I think. And, and I look, I should probably work on sounding a little more graceful with this. First of all, I think a lot of the people who have embraced this worldview don't really have it. They don't really have a comprehensive worldview of it. Uh, there are bits and pieces of it, and a lot of it I, I just find to be like it works well on Twitter where you control your opponents. But as an actual matter where you can churn out a white paper that discusses a policy and how it would apply, none of it seems to make sense to me other than does it piss off David French that that seems to be the, the test being used right now. <laughs> does David French hate it? If David French hates it, then I guess they're all on the right track. It just it, it, You can't use the government to impose your values on others as a conservative because there are more non-conservatives in the country than there are conservatives. So all you're doing is creating the monster that then eats you. And I've been trying to make this point, but uh, David French agrees with me, so I guess I'm in the wrong. <laughs> you're going to get eggs thrown at your house if you keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> we were discussing another uh, nightmare scenario with David Gergen recently, I think about a week or two ago. And it has to do with the populism, Eric, moving through the right, the conservative right, and more so even the Trump right. So I'm going to call it the populist right. At the state and local level, there is a push where these conservative Trump right candidates are running on a platform to eventually overturn the electoral votes of the state that they're in if the vote doesn't go their way. Uh, David Gergen said that this was his nightmare scenario. If this were to be attempted in 2024 and it was a close election, and let's say they were able to throw out the Georgia votes, for example, send two, two dual states of electors to Congress and that flipped the election, 
uh, he doesn't think that Democrats would be able to stop it or there'd be enough strong voices in the Republican Party in the House to stop it. Is this a realistic fear? I think the ground is being laid by Trump, but he's also being advised by a lot of people who thought that Hugo Chavez's ghost and the Iranians were somehow able to hack Dominion voter system machines. Uh, so it looks good on paper to them, but in reality, it's not the way it works. And, and I do think even a a 6-3 Supreme Court where he's put three of them on would, would shut it down. Because in large part, if you read the law coherently uh, with election lawyers, not DUI lawyers who suddenly decided that they wanted to be elections experts. I, I was an elections lawyer, by the way. So not Sidney um, Powell, not Lynn Wood. Yeah, not Sidney Powell, not Lynn Wood. Uh, the constitutional designation for the Electoral College and how you select the electors is, does the legislature appoint the electors themselves or do they base it on the popular vote of the state? That's what the Constitution means. The law is pretty clear on this fact. And while they can alter the Electoral College Act to clarify that for the idiots in the crowd, they don't really need to clarify it that much for the lawyers necessarily. Uh, the precedent's been set. So you can have all these people show up, become uh, elected officials, and then throw out the election. But they can't really do that because unless they get the legislatures of the several states to say, uh, you know what, actually, we want to ignore the will of the people and do this ourselves, well, then they've already bound themselves to the popular vote. I, I think it gets to the Supreme Court and they say no. Uh, now, I, all of that being said, I understand why people like David Gergen are, are concerned about it because we are at this very weird time in American history. My personal interpretation of it is not an overthrow of democracy, but we are seeing in real time the realignment of politics in the country. We've studied the realignments in the country in the past uh, during the, 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 Wood, the Woodrow Wilson era, the, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt era. Uh, the McKinley era, all of the upheavals we've had, the upheavals with the Whigs and the rise of the Republican Party, I think we're seeing that in real time now. The problem that we have at this point and the reason we're seeing it play out as we have is in the past it was very easy to start a third party. And so those those passions could filter out into new parties rising. But now the Democrat and Republican parties have such a stranglehold on politics in this country. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing, but this is having to play out within political parties instead of spilling over into new political parties. But all it is is a political realignment like we've seen in the past. From your perspective, you're you're about 13 years older than me. You're also, uh, you've graduated from law school, you passed the bar, and you run a very popular radio show that is definitely in tune with grassroots movements and what energizes voters. How do we get past this era um, in a way where our democracy and system is intact? And, and more specifically, uh, like you said, throughout history, America has been divided and we've been wobbling at times. Hell, we even had a civil war at one point, right? right? Um, but I'm what concerns me is we have a few different factors here. And one, we have the gerrymandering issue where both parties are at a race to the bottom, where they're trying to create the most extreme districts possible to create the most safe seats. Two, we have social media, which on the left and right means different things. But I think we agree 
it is driving polarization. And then three, we have mainstream media, which is focused on these clickbaity titles, and that tends to be gotcha journalism. So is there a path forward to kind of de-escalating this cold political war? And will it involve any of the things that I just outlined? I think gerrymandering is as bad now as it was 30 years ago, uh, but it really wasn't in the forefront of people's minds until the Republicans really swept into power. And in the early 2000s, and particularly at 2010, the Democrats had such a bad election, Republicans were able to lock in their gains. It's not like Democrats didn't used to do this. I, I, y'all, I live in Georgia. In 2000, the redistricting, the Democrats in Georgia did a more brutal redistricting than anything we've seen in the last several decades. Uh, they had multi-member districts. They drew districts that covered the entire state, uh, for the, and that's just at the state legislative level. At the federal level, they drew districts. You could literally pole vault from one side of the district to the other across two other congressional districts. Uh, it was the most bizarre thing, and, and the, we forget Democrats did this too. The other two, however, were not done and are a new phenomenon. Uh, social media now is deeply divisive. We have taken away our local community where we actually know our next door neighbor. We check their mail and water their plants when they're out of town to I'm just going to stay online with everybody who thinks exactly like me. And I'm not going to listen to the media because they're biased against me. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole on YouTube and find the videos that tell me exactly what I already think. That is a terrible and dangerous phenomenon in this country because we're to build communities in our actual reality. And instead, we're building communities online. The other one is the media. And I do think the media across the board uh, is engaged in clickbait journalism. And a lot of people just read the headlines. I, I find this as a writer. I will write a headline designed to provoke people to come read the underlying article and forget, oh, the dumbasses, they're, gonna, they're just going to read the headline. And they're not going to come come read what I actually wrote that explains the headline. And it happens all the time. We, we become a clickbait culture of no attention span. Now, my preferred solution is probably the one that we're never going to get to, and that is stop worrying about Washington, D.C. You really want to fix the country, worry about your city. Now, I, I tell my conservative listeners on radio all the time, go find your battered women's shelter. Go find your homeless shelter. Go find your soup kitchen. Go find your goodwill. Go volunteer there. Uh, if you're improving your local community, you will eventually wind up improving your state. You improve your state, you'll eventually wind up improving Washington and, and the federal government. But at this point, everybody left and right looks to Washington as where every solution is going to be solved and every problem is going to be fixed. And the reality is, from George W. Bush to Barack Obama to Donald Trump to now Joe Biden, our lives have not dramatically changed from administration to administration. At the state and local level, though, our lives can profoundly change, as we've seen with parental revolts over school boards. And conservatives have done a much better job, Eric, at focusing on those state and local levels than the Democrats. I don't know that we do anymore. Oh, I, man. You know, <laughs> I, I, so I actually, here's my working theory. I shared this with James Carville one time. He told me I had merit in it. I think Bill Clinton was the most destructive president for the conservative movement in American history. Uh, even though you look at the, at the numbers, Republicans swept into power. Here's the problem. 
So many Democrats were comfortable becoming Republican because of Bill Clinton's behavior. Groups like the Heritage Foundation and other conservative groups no longer had to have a develop a skill to work across an aisle to develop a public policy that could be shared on a bipartisan basis. All they had to do was keep it in-house. And as long as the Republicans were dominant, they could get it done. And we lost over time the ability to reach out across the aisle and find some level of conservative consensus when, you know, at a philosophical level, more Americans say they're conservative than liberal, but at a practical level, maybe they aren't. But I, th- I think we lost that ability because all the Democrats who had been conservative suddenly were Republicans. There was no need to retrust out. And now we're back to the point where you need to. Uh, yeah, okay. And for the longest time, yeah, Justin, I'll concede for a very long time, conservatives, I think, really did spend a lot more time focusing on state and local solutions. But in the age of Trump and beyond, I think they kind of looked at Washington as as where everything was going to be fought. And that mindset of Washington solves every problem and creates every problem is our nationally to our detriment. The founders, I think, were way smarter than us and embraced the idea of federalism. And you have horizontal and vertical federalism, uh, horizontal states versus states, federal or uh, vertical being the federal and the state level. And we need to re-embrace federalism to solve the problems. On stage in Georgia. You know, we won Georgia, just so you understand. Hello, Georgia, by the way. There's no way we lost Georgia this time. That was a rigged election. But we're still fighting it, and you'll see what's going to happen. Briefly portraying himself as capable of accepting defeat. If I lost... I'd be a very gracious loser. But repeatedly claimed without evidence he was wronged in November. But you can't ever accept when they steal and rape and accept. Indulging in talk of his personal fate. I don't want to wait till 2024. I want to go back three weeks. But I do want to shift down to Georgia. Trump is also playing a massive, massive role in Georgia politics. We can just look at the two Democratic senators that he helped so feverishly to elect, or we can look at his endorsement and pushing Herschel Walker into the race. And then the inter-party feuding between David Perdue and Brian Kemp that is going on for governor. So how do you think Trump's impact will ultimately play out in that governor's primary? And will it leave one of these candidates so battered and so bruised that they won't be able to compete with Stacey Abrams? Oh, where do I begin here? Let me begin with a number. 427,502. 427,502. That is the number of registered Republicans in Georgia who voted in the November 2020 general election and never showed up in the um, in, in the runoff for the Senate. Republicans didn't show up. Uh, John Ossoff beat David Perdue by 90,000 votes. Had those Republicans showed up, both of the Republicans would have won. Uh, it was unfortunate that the president, the chairman of the Republican Party in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a whole lot of other people said, oh, it's going to be stolen. It was stolen and it's going to be stolen again. It actually got to the point where Democratic groups bought billboards around the state of Georgia that said, don't bother, they're going to steal it. 
and it was paid for by some PAC that was actually a Democratic PAC, but it was in all the Republican areas of the state. I mean, I had to get, tip my hat to this group that did this because it just went along with the messaging of the Republicans, and it worked. They talked to themselves out of victory. That's one reason, by the way, I tell people all the time, don't say Georgia really is a purple state. It's only purple when the Republicans hold their breath and stamp their feet that their election is going to be stolen. Otherwise, it's, it's still more a red state than a blue state, more, more a red state than a purple state. Donald Trump's interference, though, cost the Republicans the Senate and ironically impacted his own legacy. And he doesn't care uh, because it's all about him. It's not about his policies. So now we're in the situation in Georgia where you have Herschel Walker running for the Senate, who probably can win because his name is Herschel Walker, uh, even with all the baggage. I don't know that he's ever going to appear on a campaign debate stage with Warnock. I think he will ride his name. Right now, even in the Republican primary, he's nowhere to be seen. He's nowhere to be found. They're playing it very off the radar, off the grid. My name is Herschel Walker. You know who I am. Vote for me. And it's working. The Quinnipiac poll has him at 83% in the Republican primary right now. It's in May. They probably can't overcome that. At least I hope they go on the attack the Republicans do and air his dirty laundry out, of which there is many. But then there's the David Perdue, Brian Kemp race. David Perdue, three months before he entered the race, was on the campaign trail praising Brian Kemp, defending him, and pledging his support to Brian Kemp. A friend of mine tells me that the only thing that changed is the air at Mar-a-Lago uh, has its own reality distortion field. And he went down, had a few visits, and was convinced to run. No one in his family thought he should run. His cousin, Sonny Perdue, the former governor and ag uh, secretary for Trump, didn't think he should run. But he's running. He's not raising any money. He raised $1.1 million, has 870000 cash on hand, did an event in North Georgia that I think 15 people showed up to. But the polling in Georgia shows two things. In the primary – Voters are more likely to support a candidate if Donald Trump supports them, and so he's running ads with Donald Trump. And two, in the general, voters are less likely to support you if they know Donald Trump supports you. So if he gets the Republican nomination, he helps Stacey Abrams. It's flummoxing down here to watch this happen. It's frustrating. But at the same time, David Perdue has capitalized on something. There are still a number of Republicans who are very aggrieved about 2020, still think it was stolen and still blame Brian Kemp, even though the Constitution of Georgia is very clear, the governor of the state can play no role whatsoever in the election. So it could end up dampening turnout then, if it's a bloody it primary. very well could. I get these phone calls on my show. I realize it's February, the election's not until November, but I get these these calls that if, if David Perdue doesn't win, uh, screw the GOP, I'm staying home. Stacey Abrams can have the state. So I do want to just flip back to religion a little bit. There's obviously a trend in secularization. Do you think that there's any way to reverse this, people not going to church? And if there is a way to reverse it, how? Or is it inevitable that these type of things will just continue to gain steam and be a bad trend for Christianity? Oh, well, you know, as, as Ralph Douthat often says these days, if you don't like the Christian right, wait till you see the post-Christian right. Uh, and I, I'm with him on that. Uh, I, I think the church has a role to play in stopping the secularization of the country, but it's real hard for the church to play a role when members of the church are being jackasses to each other. 
Um, <laughs> they will know us by our love. You can't find any Christians these days because they hate each other so much. Uh, there's a real problem there. I think secularism is a bad thing in general, not because I hate people who are secular and don't go to church, but I think history has shown us that as societies begin to secularize, that actually does make um, break down respect for democracy, break down respect for civility, and break down respect for community. Uh, And I think you see that around the world in societies that have kind of lost their their sectarian underpinnings. Now, that doesn't mean I want a sectarian society. I would very much like to have a liberal democracy where someone who doesn't believe in God and someone who does believe in God can live in harmony together. Part of the problem with secularism where we are right now is a lot of people who were in the church who still pretend to be in the church can increasingly become some of the worst people out there. Uh, and they hide behind Jesus when they don't really believe in him. I mean, let's be honest here. Evangelical is rapidly becoming ethnic denominators as opposed to religious identifiers. Uh, Are you an evangelical? Well, I live in the South and I own a bass boat. Yes, I'm an evangelical. That's not a helpful category anymore. A recent study by the Survey Center on American Life found that white evangelicals are more likely than other Republican factions to believe in conspiracies relating to the deep state, QAnon, and that Antifa was responsible for the Capitol attack. You're saying religious terrorist groups, and it's hard to imagine um, that that isn't a bit of hyperbole when we're we're talking about evangelical Christians who believe in Q. Are are you overstating the case, or is that really what you're seeing in your research? This is more about the potential of what we see going forward. The world goes under deep state Illuminati possession. What next? Shut your churches down? The pedophiles, the Satanists. Take your kids out of your home with their wicked plots. Rape your wives. You think we are on the losing side? We In 2020 of October, a poll from Denison showed that 50% of evangelical Christians agreed or strongly agreed with QAnon beliefs. Are you concerned about the changing character of the Christian right and specifically with the influence of these people maybe migrating to a different belief system? I I am. um, Listen, Gnosticism has always been a threat, and and, uh, so this is where my I guess my seminary background comes in. In the early Christian church, the Apostle John died, we think, around 100 AD. Uh, We know he lived. We've got plenty of records. He was a real guy. His death is documented around 100 AD. Early Christian writers shifted dramatically in what they were writing about Christianity the moment John died because this group rose called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed they had some secret knowledge where if you embrace them, and learned their ways and read their sacred texts, you would be enlightened into who Jesus Christ really was, and you would have a path of enlightenment that excluded the rest of the world. Now, that's not Christianity. And a lot of early Christians had to turn and write and challenge them. Gnosticism has never gone away. QAnon is a form of Gnosticism. You have to read certain texts and watch certain videos and listen to certain people, and they enlighten you into the way the world works. That's very alluring to people within the Christian faith who see the world going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, in their view, and there's got to be something more here, and they go find it. That said, I would push back on the survey to some degree in that 
Uh, not only have I been in seminary, I am in regular contact with evangelicals around the country, uh, evangelical ministers around the country. I preach in churches, and every single person I know believes that that overstates the embrace of QAnon. And most people don't even know what the hell it is, uh, including inside the church. That being said, I have encountered it in churches, but I also encountered it out in society in general. Aaron, over to you. I wanted to ask you about GOP Senate recruitment. There's been a bunch of what I would describe as kind of blue chip candidates who have declined to run. So I think most recently, Governor Hogan in Maryland, there's Sununu. Um, there's been a couple others around the country who have declined to run, even though it seemed like they were probably the GOP's best chance. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why you think that is and what impact, if any, you think we'll have on this upcoming election. Thanks. I mean, would you want to run as a Republican when you've got the RNC out there censuring Cheney and Kinzinger, whether you agree with them or not? They look like a bunch of idiots. Well, I, I would like to run in 2022. Well, no, no, no. You have to rerun 2020 before you can run in 2022. I wouldn't want to put up with that crap. I don't blame them for not wanting the headache. If I were a governor, I wouldn't want to be in the United States Senate. Uh, and in fact, when you hear from some of the governors who are in the United States Senate, they say it's the most miserable job ever. Uh, I, if I were a, a businessman, why would I want the attacks on me and my family, particularly getting through a primary when to some degree they're all having to do this uh, kabuki theater uh, where they have to dodge the questions about 2020, not just from the CNN reporters who are trying to play gotcha with them, but from the crowd that shows up as well and is convinced that uh, January 6th was the most patriotic day since the storming of the Bastille, and uh, 2020 was stolen by Hugo Chavez's ghost. Why, why would you want to put up with that? Uh, so I get it. I totally get it. Um, and if, if I sound a little bitter by it, I'm just deeply frustrated with the Republican Party's inability to move beyond the mythologies they've told themselves about all of this crap. I don't think in Georgia they're going to have any sway. Herschel Walker is going to be it. But in Pennsylvania, no, I think we'll find someone better than Dr. Oz. In Ohio, <laughs> there's there are a lot of people – I think uh, J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel are going to destroy each other. That'll allow someone else to rise. I just find it fascinating that everybody ignores Nevada. It's like the one state where every single Republican has rallied around Adam Laxalt. Now, full disclosure, he's a friend. I think he's a great candidate. But it's like the only state where the Republicans have found one person they all agree on. Uh, and therein lies the answer to your question of, my gosh, uh, why would you want to go through the hell of a Republican primary in 2022, where every question is going to be about 2020. We will go to our last question of the night from Mr. John Gunnison. John, over to you. Thanks again, Eric. So I want to ask you a question about the media and how you fit into the media ecosystem. These standalone media outlets like the Weekly Standard or Red State that would criticize Trump got into a bit of trouble. Uh, we know that the Weekly Standard got shut down. I know that it was quite difficult to try to steer Red State through the primary process and the early years of the Trump presidency for this reason. And so you've chosen a subscription model with the new Substack venture. And so I want to know, who is your audience? Can you tell us who is the average subscriber to your newsletter? Where do they fit into the political spectrum and how do they feel about these issues that are dividing the conservative movement? Okay, so I, let me take this a roundabout way. I was at CNN for three years, and then I moved to Fox uh, in 2013. 
when 2015 rolled around and I uninvited Donald Trump from my red state event, uh, that was about the last time I got on Fox uh, with any regularity. I uh, couldn't be at Fox, really, on TV if you were critical of Trump. It was not a fun job to be someone who was a Republican, was a conservative, but wasn't willing to hump the leg of the candidate. And it just it got to be performance art. So I left. Now, after that, I started getting regular invites on other news networks. The moment in 2019 I said I would be willing to vote for Trump in 2020, even if I had to hold my nose, all the media invitations disappeared. I mean, I was doing some shows twice a month. Uh, and, and suddenly gone uh, because I was no longer a Trump critic uh, who wouldn't vote for him, but I was a Trump critic who would still vote for him. My subscribers tend to be center-right evangelicals who think the whole world has lost its freaking mind. And uh, they tend to look at me and say, I, I at least value your perspective because – you're still saying the same things you were saying in 2015 and 2016. I don't actually get any of the money from my subscribers. The money goes to pay the satellite costs, the board op costs, the producer costs to get my show on radio in lieu of advertisers. And it's worked. Um, I, I'm able now to have a nationally syndicated show and cover the satellite fees and everything else for conservative radio. It is a lot of people who consider themselves faith-based voters who look at how evangelicals went all in with Trump and are really horrified by it and don't like the way the Republican Party is shaking out, even as they agree with a lot of the policy. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Eric, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with a few thousand listeners. If you want to join us live, ask one of our upcoming guests a question, or hear past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. And please also take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Friday with S.V. Date of the Huffington Post on whether there is bias in political media coverage, including for or against Presidents Biden or Trump. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team. Thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.